This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers today. today. Jump That's it. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. G'day, Courtney Fowler with you on Countrywide. Thanks for your company. New quad bike laws introduced this week have prompted some robust debate amongst farming communities. One safety researcher has welcomed the changes but isn't convinced the new regulations go far enough. It's a major defect in the uh, quad bikes. Um, Their stability is equivalent to a heavily overladen truck, trying to drive a heavily overladen truck. I'm talking a 44-tonner over rough terrain. And um, over that rough terrain, they... um, uh, they will tip over quite easily. Also on this episode of Countrywide, videos originally aimed at educating veterinary students about cattle find a new audience in an unexpected online community. Whatever I'm doing, I'll be, hey, would you mind holding my camera and video on this? And then, on, and then I'll get home and just upload it. It's pretty simple. And uh, the ones that people like appears to be pus. The pimple popper crowd in the US got a hold of it and it just went, it went viral. It went ballistic. Yeah, it's had 3.6 million hits. I do hope I haven't put you off your food today and very shortly on the program we're going to hear about how some of Australia's largest farming cooperatives are using financial incentives to drive up vaccination rates. All these stories and more coming up on Countrywide. But up first, as the Federal National Party debate whether to support Australia signing a net zero emissions target... The country's peak farm lobby group is calling on the government to support a policy that would see Aussie farmers compensated for contributing to the nation's climate targets. You may recall back in the 1990s and early 2000s, bans on land clearing were imposed by state governments to help Australia meet its Kyoto climate obligations. It was a policy decision that hurt graziers across New South Wales and Queensland, leaving them without access to productive parts of their farmland during times of drought. And according to the National Farmers Federation, all the thousands of farmers impacted deserve to be paid back. National Rural reporter Kath Sullivan joins us today. Kath, what is it exactly that the NFF are calling for? Hi, Courtney. Yeah, this was an interesting one. We knew that the National Farmers Federation supported Australia moving to a net zero economy by 2050. In fact, it came out with a statement saying as much in August of last year. But this week, it sort of demanded that the federal government really recognise the contribution that farmers had made to Australia being able to reach earlier international climate commitments by um, evening the ledger were its words, providing some sort of re or compensation or recompense for the role that farmers played in meeting Kyoto um, protocols. Now, just for the benefit of those who can't remember what happened yesterday, let alone what happened in the 1990s and early 2000s, what happened was Australia signed up to reduce its emissions under the Kyoto Protocol. And a way that they found they could do that was by reducing land clearing. So it had been assumed that land clearing would continue at a rate which it had been going at. But then state governments, particularly Queensland and New South Wales, came in and banned uh, land clearing and said that native vegetation couldn't be touched. That way, Australia could really uh, meet the targets 
that had been set. But you can imagine this was incredibly painful for those farmers who paid for the land, assuming that they would be able to use it uh, for their farming and essentially were told that what they were doing would be illegal. Mm. What sort of impact did that have at the time, Kath, on some of the farmers impacted? Oh, it's been remarkable. You know, we've seen challenges in courts. Uh, We've seen people get highly emotive. It's incredibly distressing. And as Fiona Simpson, the president of the NFF, pointed out this week, you know, farmers are paying rates on this land. The land is valued uh, based on the assumption that you're able to use it for for your livestock. And Basically, what's happened is the farmers haven't been able to do their jobs. And and we've seen a lot of protests throughout the years, but I think a few people were a bit surprised to hear the National Farmers Federation bring it up again this week. So this idea of a redress scheme, I mean, have the NFF sort of indicated how that might work and, and what's the government's response been to this? Okay, well, first of all, what's the NFF asking for? It says, let's even the ledger, let's have redress. Nobody was compensated at the time. One of the ways that it's suggested that could happen today would be if the landholders were given carbon credits for the carbon which they'd sequestered in their vegetation. Now, I'm not sure that might sound a little bit like trying to unscramble the egg for a lot of people. Of course, land changes hands. Uh, The NFF couldn't even say how many landholders it it expected were caught up in these state-based laws, but it felt that that was perhaps one way, giving farmers an option to either trade the credits or perhaps offset their own activities, noting that many farmers today are looking at how they can make their own business carbon neutral. To the question of what the government has said, and interesting to note that the Farmers Federation was really going after the Nationals Party Room with this call. Um, it, It was directing the call to the Nationals, who we know have so far held out on a net zero target by 2050. It hasn't actually had an opportunity to meet or brief the Nats party room, um, despite that being its intention earlier in the week. But it's been a bit of a mixed response, to be honest. Barnaby Joyce, the leader of the Nats, and, and Bridget McKenzie, who's also in Cabinet, have been pointing out that farmers did a lot of heavy lifting the last time Australia signed up to international climate commitments or when it signed up to Kyoto. So it does feed into their narrative. But we did hear the Agriculture Minister, David Littleproud, say that farmers have been compensated for these land clearing bans and that because the bans were implemented at a state level, it's really for the state's it's something that the states need to address. So I guess you could say the issue hasn't really been resolved. What has been the reaction from graziers around the country? I understand not all farmers actually support this call for compensation. Yeah, well, it was quite interesting because uh, we heard from some people who have been heavily involved and very vocal in opposing the state land clearing bans, saying that, you know, no level of money or no level of compensation is really going to make up for what we've been through over the past 20 years or so with with what's happened. So the anger is still out there. It's still incredibly palpable. Others have said, well, hang on, how are you actually going to do this, taking a more practical approach? Whereas others, again, have said, yes, it's time to acknowledge the pain and suffering that this national climate policy caused. Because these farmers were not allowed to use their farms, essentially, or parts of their farms, it meant that other parts of the economy could continue emitting quite heavily. Uh, There wasn't 
call for other parts of the sector and urban industries in particular to reduce their emissions. And so everybody recognises that if we are to commit towards net zero by 2050, there's a lot of people who are going to have to change what they're doing. And it was Richard Heath at the Australian Farm Institute who said this could be one way of trying to rebuild trust between rural and regional people and governments, um, which he says will be integral for the policies, the climate policies that are to come. And as you mentioned, Kath, I mean, climate policy is really topical right now. The call for compensation from NFF, that comes as the, the Nats uh, are negotiating with its coalition partner on these net zero emissions by 2050. Um, I know mm-hmm. the Nats have so far refused to endorse this target. I mean, is there any indication that the government's going to be able to come to some kind of consensus before the big global climate meeting in Glasgow at the end of the month? Look, there's really a sense in Canberra at the moment that the Prime Minister Scott Morrison will get to that net zero target. Whether the Nats are on board or how you get the Nats on board is a really interesting conversation. There's about four or five Queensland nationals who are dead set opposed to signing up. But it won't be about a party room vote. We understand that Barnaby Joyce will need to get the majority of the party room on board. We just don't know how it's going to do that, which, mind you, nobody is talking about legislating at the moment. Nobody in the government is talking about legislating. But there may also be, there's talk about other things, sweeteners, I guess. We know that Keith Pitt, the Resources Minister, has suggested that the government become a lender of last resort for the mining sector, um, propping up $250 billion if it's to agree to the target. Um Bridget McKenzie, we talked about her before, the Senator um, and Minister for Regionalisation, she wants the any policy to include a, a pause button. She says if we look at it every five years and find out that rural and regional communities are losing jobs or suffering socioeconomically, she wants to be able to pause any climate policy. So there's still really quite a long way to go really until we um, get an idea or sense of um, how uh, net zero emissions by 2050 might look and and indeed how agriculture will play a part in all of that, Kath. Yeah, well, I guess you could consider it, um, we've only been talking about it for what, the last 25 years, so what's a little bit longer yet? And it was interesting too, Courtney, that uh, the mining magnate, Andrew Twiggy Forrest, who of course has made so much money from heavy emitting industry, actually used an address at the National Press Club to suggest that Scott Morrison not worry about whether he has the national support or not. He says to proceed irrespective uh, of whether the junior coalition partner agrees with this net zero by 2050. In fact, it seems like most people in this country have got an opinion about what's to happen now. But, Courtney, I expect we won't really know too much until at least the Nats have had a chance to have that party room meeting on Sunday. Their their government counterparts, the Liberals, have called a party room meeting for Monday. Um, But who knows when this one will be resolved. Well, I'm sure you'll be keeping a very close eye on all those negotiations. That was a National Rural Reporter Kath Sullivan giving us a bit of insight into some of those fiery discussions being had between the government and agricultural leaders around climate change policy. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. 
Well, as Australia works towards reaching COVID vaccination targets to reopen its borders, a mobile hub has delivered vaccines to staff at the country's largest meat and dairy cooperatives in northern New South Wales. More than 110 workers lined up for the jab at Norco's ice cream factory in Lismore and the casino food co-op's meat processing and tannery plant. A cash incentive and a COVID scare has helped push both co-ops towards an 80% vaccinated workforce. Kim Honan has this report. Dairy Cooperative Norco is at the tail end of its vaccination program, which provides employees with a financial incentive. Its general manager of manufacturing foods is Adrian Kings. You know, there's many pieces to the puzzle. You know, part of it is enticing staff with a, with a payment incentive, so they get $50 for the first vaccination and $100 for the second one. We've certainly been talking about the benefits of getting vaccinated at toolbox meetings, uh, communications from the CEO um, and other members of the, um, you know, of the broader business. So was the incentive program, was that for employees across all your sites? Yeah, that was for any employee that works for Norco at any site, including retail, mills uh, and and the food sites. Why did the co-op feel that it needed to provide a financial incentive to get workers vaccinated? Oh, look, it's it's only about motivation and engagement. And, uh, you know, if, if, if... if, uh, if some sort of reward like that does motivate a percentage of people to do it, well, that's great. We're, we're in for motivating people to get vaccinated. So what percentage of your workforce here in Lismore have now been vaccinated? The number's sitting in the low 70s with what's happening here today, but we've, cert- we've got about 88% of our staff here on the food site that are committed to getting um, vaccinated. And what's the vaccination rate at, at your other sites, Labrador and at Raleigh? Yeah, look, Labrador is slightly lower. You know, they're, they're operating with, with, with zero cases in Queensland, so the motivation is not as high as what it is here in New South Wales. So they're sitting at about the mid-70% rate that are committed to it at the moment. Um, uh, certainly lower actual vaccination numbers than what we're seeing at both the Raleigh and, um, and Lismore sites. Uh, Rally just out of uh, Coffs Harbour there is sitting at about the 80% mark that are committed to getting uh, vaccinated and uh, actual vaccination rates are similar to what they are here in Lismore. Two weeks ago, the Casino Food Co-op shut down operations at its casino plant for a day following a COVID-positive case in a worker in its shipping office. Six close contacts and 20 casual contacts at the site all returned negative results. Dan Smith is the Co-op's Group HR Manager. We definitely used that as an incentive to you know um, get people to come forward um, but we were quite comfortable with our procedures that we'd implemented in the last 18 months and um, honestly to, to to give it our procedures a run with a positive case was a great outcome for us you know to only lose um, one day's production. And so you hadn't made vaccination mandatory but had you provided any incentives for for workers to get vaccinated? Yeah, we've offered no incentive other than trying to make it easy and readily available to our workers um, and making it convenient. My team um, have worked extremely hard to get people into doctors and to get the vaccination and also the work that's been put in to get this clinic up and running. And so when do you think you'll be at that 80% target? I'm hoping by the end of November we'll continue to work with our um, employees that you know choose not to be vaccinated. Um, and we'll always have it, have the offer available to them if they choose to change their decision.
Daniel Hammond and I'm from Casino. I'm a boner in the boning room on night shift, yeah. How long have you been waiting to get vaccinated? Have you been wanting to do it for a while? I have, yeah. I've been a bit lazy, so work, work, bring it up, and I thought, yeah, I better, better just do it. So you've just had it done now? Yeah, it didn't hurt. I was surprised. I'm actually scared of needles. <laughs> Did you have a preference, whether it was Pfizer or AstraZeneca? Uh, yeah, because I'm on the younger age. I, yeah, Pfizer's better for me, yeah. So I just thought everyone else was getting it, so I should get it, yeah. Daniel Hammond is a worker at the Casino Food Co-op in New South Wales. He was ending that report by Kim Honan. And you might also be interested to know that WA's main grain handler, CBH, is also keen to have all its staff fully vaccinated against COVID-19 in time for this season's harvest. In a recent survey completed by just over half of its employees, 79% indicated they are either fully vaccinated have had their first vaccination or are booked in to receive their first jab. To speed up the process, there's now a $100 incentive for all CBH staff to have both shots by mid-December. It's hoped that will avoid any possible disruption to the supply chain this harvest. You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. You're with Courtney Fowler on ABC Radio. Thanks for joining me on the program today. The evidence supporting the need for rollover protection bars on quad bikes is clear, according to one expert, who says farmers could face court action if they don't heed it. The comments come this week after new safety standards were introduced, which require rollover bars to be installed on new and imported second-hand quad bikes. Professor Raphael Gibeta says a number of court cases and years of surveys and testing have found that quads are inherently unstable and are very prone to flipping over. He told Michael Condon he's been calling for safety action for many years. Yes, absolutely. We have been calling for it, though it's not the panacea. Um, if you look at our um, extensive reports, we did over a 1,000 tests at the crash lab facility, the uh, Transport for New South Wales testing facility and uh, what we found was the side-by-side vehicles are the more appropriate farming vehicle. Um, However, people have to wear their seatbelts when they ride in them but they can carry larger loads, they've got better stability and they offer you um, uh, proper protection. So the um, OPD or the uh, Operator Protective Device, the roll bar um, that this new law covers now really is a, um, how do you say, we shouldn't let perfection um, uh, ruin the good. Uh, it really is about um, doing something uh, in this space. And so, yes, we agreed that it would be good to introduce the law, but it's not the solution. Not the solution um, because there are still some problems with these... Uh, well, these, these uh, quad bikes are very unstable. Oh, yeah, particularly unstable. It's a major defect in the uh, quad bikes. Um, their, their, their stability is equivalent to a heavily overladen truck. Trying to drive a heavily overladen truck, I'm talking a 44 tonner, over rough terrain. And um, over that rough terrain, they, um, uh, they will tip over quite easily. Um, a tuft of grass 30 centimetres high will roll your uh, quad bike over. A, a rut in the, uh, created by a tractor will roll your uh, quad bike over. So high propensity to roll over. And when quad bikes do have rollover, rollover protection, uh, you've seen no, no fatalities uh, from your figures? We have not found a fatality where um, uh, any, any 
uh, quad bike has a uh, roll bar fitted, uh, the, 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 the ones that are marketed. So we haven't seen any, any fatalities uh, uh, in that regard. We've seen one injury. We did a major survey of um, quite, a, quite a large number, about 1,600 farmers on uh, Australian and New Zealand farms. And there was just one major injury uh, where someone had um, fractured their thigh and the uh, quad bike with the roll bar pinned him down, but uh, he wasn't he wasn't killed, and he had a survival station. And and there is a that's the thing with these units; they give you a crawl out space. Now, also, you're a, a lot of farmers probably don't realise that um, if they have an accident on farm, someone's killed or injured, that uh, they might be liable for um, uh, charges. You know, they might be. Tell us about that because there's been some case case law in that uh, department. Yes, um, there have been some charges laid against, particularly um, farmers that um, take small children on their um, on their quad bikes. Uh, and then they roll over and, and the child dies. So there've been a couple of uh, a couple of those cases uh, that we've noted criminal cases. Uh, and uh, there's also some work that was done in Victoria as well, where where notices were uh, presented to farmers who hadn't uh, fitted a rollover protection uh, uh, bar on their vehicle and were asked to do so, and they uh, rejected that. And, and cited some of the manufacturers, um, you know, the Honda, Suzuki, etc., manufacturers' um, uh, claims that um, uh, that these bars don't don't uh, protect you, and so that went to a tribunal that was here in Victoria, uh, and in the end, uh, what happened was that the um, Victorian Work Cover Authority had um, get a positive result on this, and so farmers in Victoria, at least have to fit these units. So there could be you could be up for charges if you let kids go on the back uh, of the bike, the bike rolls over, someone's hurt. You, you could face industrial, face manslaughter charges as well. So we're talking serious charges and go to jail. Yes, absolutely, because these units, these vehicles, they have... They have all of the um, the manual tells you how to ride them, how to how to operate them, and they've got all these warning tags on them. And if you don't abide by those, and and you go riding around on these things, and you've got a bunch of kids on 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 these units as you're riding around and tips over and uh, kills somebody, well, then uh, you know you can expect to have the police visit you. Professor Raphael Jabita is a road safety expert at the University of New South Wales. He was speaking with the Country Hours, Michael Condon. Let's finish up in Western Australia, where an enterprising vet from the Esperance region is using social media platforms to try and bridge the city-country divide. And as Tara DeLangraff reports, his videos are proving so popular, they're now a great little money earner. Dr Enoch Bergman has been a vet for over two decades. Originally hailing from Colorado in the US, he now calls WA's southeast coast home. And his expertise in large animals, especially cattle, has made him infamous in farming circles around the state. But he's now gathering quite the following online as well, with his YouTube channel having close to 50,000 subscribers. I get students like Carl come down and they'd be in the rocket with me driving around and we'd be do something kind of neat and they go oh you should video that and put it on YouTube and I was like oh yeah 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 and I was like this isn't actually that difficult so I just Enoch the cow vet and I just flicked up a video and it just kind of 
scrambled along and I put it on Facebook and a couple friends had a laugh and rah, rah, and then the pimple popper crowd in the US got a hold of it and it just went it went viral. It went ballistic. Yeah, it said 3.6 million hits. I suddenly realized people were like, man, you could be monetized. I said, what the hell does that mean? I said, well you can get paid. It's like, oh really? And I said, yeah, yeah. So, so I looked into it. I became monetized and now someone else is buying the ice coffees for my clients. It's awesome. It's ridiculous. It's just madness. Enix a vet full time as well as a farmer in his own right. And while his YouTube channel started out as a way to educate students, as he mentioned, it's also gathered the tension of the pimple popping community during COVID. <laughs> well, what people want and what I what I post are quite different. Although sometimes they align. It's kind of like a big Venn diagram. So pretty much when I'm doing stuff and something's cool and I think if a student can learn from it or even another veterinarian or, or, or a lot of stuff's producer directed like, you know, how to tube feed a calf, bits and pieces like that versus other stuff's, you know, veterinary student like, you know, how to remove a cancer eye or, or how to preg test a cow, et cetera, et cetera. So I try to do whatever I'm doing. I'll be, hey, would you mind holding my camera and video on this? And then, on, and then I'll get home and just upload it. It's pretty simple. And, uh, but the ones that people like appears to be pus. It's very much a pus driven economy. So uh, if you've got an abscess out there, you farmers and aspirants, call me on the weekend. I'll come and lance it for free. <laughs> it's just madness. It's ridiculous. These people, what it is, the pimple popper thing, I think it just got to the point where they're like, they'd seen that many zits getting popped on people that they'd kind of like were running out of rope. You know, like, how much more can you do? And then they went, oh, my God, look what you can do with a cow. Because cows have really thick skin, and they have a really hyper-reactive immune system. So when they get a zit, it goes DEFCON 1. And, uh, man, these pimple popper guys, they just, some of them, you read the comments and some of them are like, I just keep watching it over and over and over again. Anyway, every time they watch it, I get two-tenths of a cent and uh, 3.6 million people watch a video, you do the maths. For vet student Kyle Smith, the chance to shadow Enoch was an opportunity not to be missed. And he says having the YouTube channel to refer back to is invaluable. There's a lot of stuff in there that you may not see while you're on prac. Our, our pracs tend to be um, two, three, four weeks max at a clinic. And, you know, that might fall in a certain season where you might see, you know, a vaginal prolapses or you might see a heap of uterine prolapses or you might do a heap of pregnancy. But you might not get to see a very wide range of things because you're only there for a short amount of time. So having that YouTube channel, something to refer back to when you go out into practice and something to learn from as well when you're a student is great. For Enig, dealing with the potential trolls or animal rights activists online was difficult at first, but he believes it's all for the good of the industry to show exactly what goes on in the field and potentially help in animal welfare situations right around the world. I want people that, that don't live on the land, because that's becoming more and more common, to kind of just see what we do out there. And admittedly, some of the stuff I do might make people go, oh my God, what are these guys doing? But, but it's just everyday stuff that I do, and they can see that I'm having fun. Sometimes I get a comment of like, well, how can you be so cavalier and, and joking around these animals? I say, look, they don't really know what I'm saying, and they respond to my mood. So I'm going to keep having fun. If I get all serious and grumbly, they're going to sense that as well. So I just have fun. And every now and again, you get a troll. And like I've had other people say, wow, you're just so polite. And I reckon that's the way we ought to be. The worst thing we can do is get angry at someone who's trying to make us angry. I mean, that's a, an activist is trying to make you angry. You know? And I do feel sorry for those people because they don't really understand that what we're doing. We love these animals more than they can even comprehend. They want to love them, but they, they don't have a connection. They don't know how. So they're trying to do it the best way they know how. And whether that's painting themselves up with red paint and walking into a crowd of people at the, at the Royal Show, whatever it is they're trying to do, they've got the right heart, but they've got the wrong idea. And I, whenever I do meet an activist, I say, you need to come ride with me in my ute for a week. I said, look, I'll introduce you to a hell of a lot of good people that love their animals more than you can even imagine. And that's what we're not communicating well. And by getting angry, we can't communicate it at all.
you do have um, viewers who are outside of Australia and perhaps from some of those third world countries. Yeah, I mean, you, a lot of India and all sorts of places. Are you worried people might might try and look at what you're teaching the vet students and, and try things themselves? Initially, I thought about that a bit, but then I thought, well. If people are in a world where they don't have access to veterinary care, at least if they watch mine, maybe they'll go about things the best that they can, and that might equal a better welfare outcome than not doing anything at all. But I'm also hoping that people that watch the videos that do have access to veterinarians are like, hey, wow, this guy's got some interesting ideas. I don't work for a living. I just spend time with my friends, and this YouTube channel is just another aspect of that. And Yeah, we'll see what I do with it. Dr Enoch Bergman, a vet and farmer from Esperance in Western Australia's southeast. And if you want to see any of the videos you've heard about on the program today, just do a search on YouTube for Enoch the Cowbird. And that's it for this week's episode of Countrywide. For more of any of the stories you've heard in this episode, and to listen to the Countrywide podcast, just head along to the ABC Rural website. Until next time, I'm Courtney Fowler. Thanks for your company. This is an ABC podcast.